Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your co-host Haywood Evans and Eddie Rye. We have a few people we're going to talk with today. Uh, we're going to continue to talk to our friends in the Asian Pacific Islander community because the hate continues. But we also got to talk about the police too. But our first guest is Attorney Jesse Weinberry Sr., who has been fighting for economic justice for uh, the people for the last 50 years. He's not quite that old, but he's been fighting for quite a while. And uh, and if this whole conversation about I-200 uh, killing uh, affirmative action in 1998, uh, uh, Councilor Weinberry has uh, solved out some new, some clarification, I should say. So Jesse Weinberry, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest. How are you doing? And also, I don't want to send out a extend a, a well wishes for your wife. She's been critically ill and you've still been on the case. So we're praying for her. So I want to make sure that all my, my prayer warriors send uh, Rochelle Weinberry's name up in prayer whenever they can. So, sir, uh, go right ahead and enlighten our audience with what your discoveries have been. Yes. I uh, Thank you, Eddie, and thank you, Hayward, for having me back as a guest. And thank you so much for your for your kind and prayerful words for, for Rochelle and I. Uh, we are making progress uh, uh, in terms of her rehab from her recent bout with, uh, with MS uh, and, and with a, uh, a brain stroke. And so uh, those, those prayers are appreciated. Uh, but, uh, but she, too, is cheering us on as we head uh, toward what we think uh, and have good reason to believe will be the final phase of this journey and of this movement to reclaim the $4 billion, that's billion with a B, that uh, ha Washington State has has uh, uh, taken away from uh, women and minority-owned businesses, uh, people of color who have, over the last 23 years, uh, sought to do business with the state in terms of winning contracts, getting jobs, and getting college educations. And uh, I appreciate uh, uh, your uh, uh, commitment uh, to be with us on this journey, uh, but I think we may be celebrating soon. Uh, the governor has uh, indicated, Governor Jay Inslee, who I served with in the House of Representatives many years ago, uh, he and I started out our political careers together in Olympia, uh, and he has indicated through his top staff that uh, he uh, is uh, getting closer and closer to signing an executive order that will correct the implementation of I-200, which has been incorrectly implemented for nearly a quarter of a century in our state. You say uh, incorrectly. Would you be clarify that for our listening audience? Uh, I-200, everybody says I-200 killed affirmative action. And what I've been discovered is that I-200 killed race and gender preferences that did not kill affirmative action. Racism killed affirmative action. Would you please elaborate on that? Sure, uh, because uh, uh, when we looked at it through that 1998 lens, uh, that's what everyone was thinking, that in 1998, when I-200 was on the ballot, it passed 58%, 58% of the voters voted to pass I-200. And uh, But when you go back and read I-200, it says that it was not to kill all affirmative action programs. It only wanted to stop those programs that gave a job, a seat in college, or a contract to a lesser qualified candidate over a more qualified candidate based on race or gender. 
Well, nobody that I know of uh, who is a person of color or who is a woman has ever gotten their job, a seat in college, or a contract solely because they were a person of color or a woman. They had to be qualified first. They had to have a resume. They had to have experience. They had to have grades to get into the colleges and universities of Washington State. So, But then came the implementation of the law, which was done through Governor's Executive 9801, and that is what broadened the the whole uh, scope of of affirmative action and directed the states, the counties, the cities, the school districts, and all of the colleges and universities to stop using affirmative action programs if they use race or gender in any respect. And that was certainly not the wording of I-200, and, and it certainly was not the intent, as we've later found out, from not only a Supreme Court decision in 2003, but the Attorney General also came in 2017 and reemphasized that I-200 was never intended and should never be implemented to go beyond what it said, and that is just to stop anybody with lesser qualified qualifications from being elevated over somebody with more qualified qualifications for a job, a seat in college, or a contract. Now, Attorney Weinberry, you mentioned what killed affirmative action. Uh, the Governor's Direct Directive 9801, could you please elaborate? This is a very critical question right now because uh, Blacks have suffered immensely. All minorities have not done as bad as Black folks, okay? As a matter of fact, certain groups are overrepresented when it comes down to participation. So we're talking about African descendants of the United States enslaved we have suffered the brunt of this whole thing. Now, you said 9801, so that means in 1998, Governor Gary Locke issued what? And what impact did that have? Well, the uh, governor's directive, you're correct, is 9801. And, and thank you for explaining what that 98 means. That 98 is short for 1998. 01 means that that is the first uh, governor's directive that was issued by that year. And yes, it was issued by, at that time, Governor Gary Locke. What did the directive, uh, uh, who was the two and what, what impact did it have? Pardon me? Who was the directive issued to and what were the instructions in the, the directive? Well, the governor uh, issued whenever, and some people may have heard of a governor's executive order. I think most people, especially now, as a result of the global pandemic, we're accustomed to Governor Inslee issuing executive orders. Those are public orders from a governor. But a governor's directive is not as public. A governor's directive goes to all of that governor's cabinet members, the executive cabinet, the sub-cabinet members. There's over 200, or close to 200 agencies in the state uh, government alone. And so all of those heads got that directive. There's over uh, uh, 200 cities. Uh, uh, there's over 200 school districts, all of the heads of those school districts and, and, and port commissions and, and counties and cities got that directive. And so that directive is still in effect. And that's why our number one request in the, in the executive order is for Governor Inslee to rescind, in other words, to kill that governor's directive that has been implemented uh, now for 23 years. But Attorney Weinberry, we haven't, you haven't let our listening audience know what was entailed in the directive. 
Well, the directive, uh, number one, it affected uh, public education, public employment, and public contracting, and it went beyond I-200. Instead of it it only stopping programs that uh, elevated a lesser qualified candidate over a more qualified candidate for a job, a seat in college, or a contract, it stopped any affirmative action program that used race or gender whether uh, the, regardless the qualifications of the individuals. In other words, if everyone was equally qualified, you could not use race. You could not use mandatory goals, which were uh, uh, a staple of the, of the contracting program, and that's how we increased the number of African-American and other uh, contractors who were doing business with the state because we had mandatory goals that each agency had to achieve each year in terms of recruiting and hiring uh, African-American and other contractors of color. Those goals were eliminated under that directive. They, it, was, it specifically states those goals are no longer legal and they're non-binding if they are still used. Uh, so you're saying, the, you're saying that, that I-200 I, I did not eliminate inclusion and affirmative action but the Directive 9801 did eliminate that. And well, we certainly see what it did to the African-American community. Uh, One-tenth of one percent, uh, and that's been, under, that's been for the, over the last 23 years. So I'm just saying is that it's obvious that some people took it, and especially that it was a, a, a way to, dis, to, to discriminate, I guess, legally, because of the fact the way uh, the directive came out. But let's move on. I want to talk about one other subject, and that's correcting what's going on right now. And that is, uh, you've been working closely with Governor Jayazi's office to craft language uh, for uh, uh, for an executive order. And also, uh, I've sent uh, various information to the new Director of Equity, Dr. Karen Johnson. She's been, uh, I've met, let her know about everything we're doing, including all the stuff you told me not to send her. I sent her it anyway, because she is the Equity Director, and she says anything dealing with equity and inclusion, she, she wants it to come to her. And she wants me to let all my listeners know Dr. Karen Johnson is Director of Equity, karen.johnson at gov.wa.gov. And she wants to hear from you about any ideas you have about equity and inclusion. So now she's going to be on the program in about two weeks to talk about her position. Uh, we've been knowing each other for about 20 years. She is a solid, solid sister. I tell you that, my sister warrior friend. She's been on the front lines and she is brilliant. So that, that you know, and, and she has an opportunity now to really make a difference inside of uh, our governor's office. So uh, now, where are we now with the executive order, Attorney Weinberry? Well, we're making great progress. Uh, as you pointed out, we've been working with the governor's office for several months. Uh, matter of fact, uh, this entire year, because we started this process in January. Uh, on on drafting an executive order, they invited uh, uh, members of our community, including myself, to uh, contribute language for an executive order. We did so uh, uh, earlier this month. We turned in our proposed uh, executive order. They have reviewed it, and we just received today, believe it or not, uh, uh, a written confirmation that uh, the governor is uh, is aligned, in other words, in agreement with uh, the majority of what we have submitted. And so we look forward to meetings that will be uh, taking place this month uh, to uh, uh, continue to uh, negotiate and craft 
uh, the specifics of this executive order. But uh, one thing is for sure. Our goal is to reclaim what the state has already declared to be close to $4 billion of uh, contracting opportunities that have been lost during the last 23 years when Washington State has been uh, incorrectly implementing I-200. And our goal is to, is to reclaim that money, either by redirecting it to those uh, minority businesses that are, that are certified now, or to uh, compensate those who have been uh, devastated by the uh, uh, incorrect imp uh, implementation of this law, and to pave the way for our kids to get into our colleges and universities in this state. A lot of people are aware that the University of Washington is now ranked in, in the top 10 universities in the world, in the world by U.S. News and World Report. Well, we pay taxes for that university, and our young people ought to be inside those classrooms and getting their, deg their degrees to achieve their dreams. And uh, one of the things I think we have to also understand is that, you know, there's another situation uh, where, you know, the, on the athletes in terms of, uh, you know, they're vigorously recruited. But I remember years ago, uh, the late Herman McKinney uh, was actually dispatched by the University of Washington to go out to historical black colleges and universities to recruit graduate black uh, students uh, graduating from HBCUs to come to graduate in a professional program at the University of Washington. I don't know if that effort is still being made, but I guess we do have uh, some good representation on the Board of Regents. And before I say anything else, I want to make sure I talk to those members of the Board of Regents that I know to say maybe we can work collaboratively together to get something done. So now let's go back to the executive order, sir. Uh, now, there we got to look at also what's happening recently. Uh, let's take the Seattle Tunnel Partners, for example. Uh, when they first got the contract, uh, Tudor Perini and Dragados, the tunnel partners, uh, uh, the then city, Seattle City Council member Michael O'Brien said to WashDOT representative at the city council meeting, I'm very concerned about uh, these companies' record uh, disparaging uh, minority firms and also, you know, holding governments hostage because they're so big. And uh, the WashDOT, oh, we don't worry about that. As a result, four black contractors went broke on the tunnel partners project. Uh, they were out of compliance, and they were being held up from getting a billion-dollar job in New York. But Matt Washdot and Federal Highway Administration used their magic to make sure they were out of compliance. They've reached a conciliation agreement that left these four blacks broke. And so we're going to Washington Civil Rights Coalition, uh, with Bob Armstead has already gone to, uh, to Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. And... Uh, I know, uh, like uh, Congressman Hank Johnson on the infrastructure, Transportation Infrastructure Committee, as well as uh, newly elected, our new member of the Congressional Black Caucus, Marilyn Strickland. We're not going to allow this to happen. We say Black Lives Matter, and then you turn right back around and do this. To, we just can't, we can't, we can't tolerate this. And so we will be going to D.C. I do know a couple of people in D.C. myself, and we're going to be holding all these agencies accountable. Uh, the other thing is that in the federal money, it seems that white females receive just about 80% of the pie. And uh, so that's other things. These disparities have got to be corrected. So in terms of where we are with the executive order and, Jay and, and uh, Governor Jay Inslee's office, uh, what, what does the timetable look like? And can you share with our listeners some of the content? And you shared one thing about making people whole. What are the other aspects of that executive order? And Hayward, you can, you can say something in a minute, okay? <laughs> 
One of the other aspects is uh, employment. Uh, there's over uh, 300,000 government jobs uh, uh, throughout the state. Uh, most of those uh, state agencies have never in the history of Washington State had more than 1% African-American in their, uh, 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 in their employment, in other words, on their payroll. Um, there's some agencies that have never hired an African-American other than a custodian. And uh, this state is 130 years old. So one of the things that we put in our proposal is that uh, the governor in his executive order set a goal that by 2024, which would be the end of his term, that uh, the, the, the representation of diversity, of racial diversity of our employment, those 300,000 jobs would reflect no less than our population represent, representation. That means that when you're looking at African-American population in Washington State right now, it's four, probably after this next uh, census result, it'll be 5%. But uh, as you pointed out, we're getting uh, a percentage of 1% of the contracts. We're getting a percentage of 1% of the employment, and, and our representation in colleges and universities is less than our population. So we want to... to That's to not the basketball and football team. With the exception of the basketball and football team, right? That's that's where they would say we're overrepresented. But uh, that's certainly not recruited based on race. That's recruited definitely based on talent. But every I, I want to ask you one thing, Attorney Weinberg. Before Hayward, do you have a question or comment before we have to go? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Just you know, for me, I keep looking at it, and, I, and the word sub subjectivity keeps popping up. What kind of enforcement me mechanism or incentive is going to be in place? to hold the managers, the employees accountable is something that's gonna be in their personnel files when they do their, their reviews. What, what type of enforcement is gonna be in place to make sure they're pursuing it? Because I keep seeing subjectivity and their personal feelings coming into play as it relates particularly to employment and admissions in college. Well, we, we actually proposed uh, two, two uh, uh, levers of enforceability. One is incentives. We're basically uh, recommending to the governor that uh, the the executives in the executive branch, and that would be the department heads and the managers, that their salaries and evaluations be based on equity, be, be based on them achieving the goals that the governor sets by those timetables in his executive order. And then if they fail to achieve or fail to even make a good faith effort, that's when uh, it can be a factor used for termination. In other words, if you do a good job right now in terms of uh, uh, if you're in DLT and you're doing a good job in terms of getting contracts, well, now we're going to add another yardstick to measure you by, and that is what are you, how are you making sure that the dollars you're spending are as diverse as the population of our state. If you fail in that regard, then that's going to be reflected in your job performance, your job evaluation, and possibly your termination that may have you looking for work because you did not find enough work for people of color. Attorney Whiteberry, can you give our, our listening audience, before we have to go, any, uh, is there a website with this information? I know I sent out 140 copies, uh, emails uh, last Sunday night to various people. And uh, I've heard back from quite a few. And I was just wondering, before Hayward asked his last question, is there any contact information that you can share at this time? 
Well, the one thing that we what we need to make clear, there's no guarantee that Governor Inslee is going to issue an executive order. And if he does, there's no guarantee that it will use our language. Here's why we can make a difference, because right now we want people who want this change to call this number 206-701-4188. So we can add your name to the list of of, of individuals, businesses, and organizations that are going to be signing on to our letter urging him to sign the executive order. That number again is 206-701-4188 to sign the letter that will be going out from the community urging Governor Inslee to sign the executive order. Okay. Hey, would you have the last word? Yeah, Jesse, you know, and again, what gets me, particularly the University of Washington, because, you know, there's a direct correlation between education and income. Uh, the University of Washington, now, they're setting up all these satellites, and it seems like all the satellite campuses is where they're sending the people of color. What's, what's going to be uh, make sure that we guarantee that they're on the main campus, the one that is in the top 10 in the world? That's a very good question, uh, Hayward, because right now they estimate there's around 400 uh, African-American students at main campus, number uh, top 10 in the world. There's 700 African-American students at University of Tacoma. And, uh, and yes, when you get your degree it, uh, from the University of Tacoma, it says UW Tacoma. It doesn't say University of Washington, Seattle. And so uh, that, is, that is something that we need to include that right now is not included in the proposed uh, executive order. And uh, we need you at the table to recommend the, the kind of language that will not have them shuttling us to uh, satellites, but instead uh, educating us and awarding those degrees from that main campus. Jesse Weinberry, we're out of time. Uh, thank you for all your work and we wanna keep you on the air and let us know how uh, the uh, effort to have uh, the, the governor sign an executive order to restore affirmative action that was mistakenly so, uh, allegedly taken away. Would you repeat that phone number that people can call again, please, before you go? Yes, we urge you to, to, to call 206-701-4188 to get your name on the list of community leaders that are urging Governor Inslee to sign this executive order, not next year, not later in this century. We want an executive order now. As to, to close out, Dr. King said it best. We yeah. want all of our rights. We want them right here, and we want them now. Thank you very much, Attorney Jesse Weinberry. We'll be looking forward to talking to you real soon. We're going to take a Thank quick you. break and come back, to come back with our next guest after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity and inclusion and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit 
lease.ctacshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Need help getting started with self-help? You came to the right place. Alternative Talk, 1150. All right, Andy Ryan, hey, whatever's back there before Northwest with our next guest, former state representative Velma Valoria, who I had the privilege of being invited by her to go on a trade mission to the Philippines, and I enjoyed it. I sure did. I would like to go back. Uh, matter of fact, uh, at, I even got a chance to go to Malacanang Palace, and I have a picture with President Fidel Ramos, and some other pictures I can't show, but they show were fine. Anyway, Delma Valori, how you doing? Thank you. Um, hi, Eddie. How's everybody there? Yeah, and here we're doing. We're just doing fine. The weather's going to be good, and uh, uh, but mm. we got a lot, a lot of work to do around here. Oh, uh, we sure do. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. So, Velma, why don't you take a couple of minutes and just, I mean, it might take you longer than that. You could take all your time, just talk about what you've done, but just share with our listeners a little bit about your background. We know you went to oh. Balboa High School in San Francisco with Calvin Jones. Oh, I know. How did you know that? Anyway, so, <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you, I am an immigrant from the Philippines. I grew up in San Francisco and went to Balboa High School with Calvin Jones. I moved to Seattle in 1983 when two of our uh, community members were murdered by the Marcos dictatorship. I, you know, it was um, it was a, a big transition for me because I was a medical technologist in New York, and when I got to Seattle, I had to work in the canneries of Alaska to make sure that we had we could fill the void that um, was needed to continue to work against the Marcos dictatorship um, and the murders that. You know, that happened here in Seattle was um, an international incident. It caused a lot of people um, around the world to say, hey, enough is enough. Shortly after the murders, maybe four years later, the Marcos dictatorship was dethroned, is what I like to call it, and was expelled um, and was no longer a dictator. But what I wanted to tell you is that I have this long history of fighting for justice, um, social justice, and also for um, equity in this, um, in this country. It hasn't been easy. It's been fraught with a lot of, um, like I said, some 
some real struggles. And so um, I come to you today to say that this latest attack on the Asian American uh, community, particularly the Asian American, has really hit a lot of us in a hard way. Um, many of the Asian American women, particularly our elderly, have been, um, I, I guess, threatened, or I don't know if threatened is the right word, but they have been feeling insecure, um, unstable, and um, actually fearful that the same thing might happen to them, what happened in Atlanta. So I wanted to be able just to say to you that the Asian American community is not monolithic. We think that um, saying that, uh, what did you call that? What did you call us? Or what did the public call us? The um, model minority? That for, for us, or for me at least, is very racist because it pits us against each other. It pits us against the black community, the Latino community, the LGBTQ community. So it, it becomes um, a real hard issue to, I guess, to, to fight over because it's, for us, we're not monolithic. Like I come from the Philippines, which is an Asian country. Another friend of mine is from India, another Asian country, right? Another friend is from Vietnam. Another friend is Cambodia. So we all speak different languages and have different cultures. So we're by no means monolithic. And that's what I wanted to try to be able to portray today. We're like in particular for a lot of the, um, I guess for a lot of the, uh, society, particularly the white women, uh, white men, they fetishize Asian American women as exotic. They're docile. They're submissive. When a lot of us are not that way, um, we're we're right there fighting for gender equity. We actually are um, out there also marching with our brothers and sisters in the black community, in the indigenous community. So it's. Uh, for for me, Eddie, I really appreciate this kind of discussion because it's a discussion that we need to have um, around the country, that Asian Americans are united with the black, the indigenous, and other people of color communities. We do not want to be um, divided racially by being called the model minority. So I just want to make that clear. Well, Velma, I just want to say that uh, if anybody grew up in the Seattle in the 50s and 60s and even the 70s, uh, my next door neighbor was the Maedas. The people, the Carosas lived right behind me. Uh, and at Garfield, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, uh, we, were, we all lived in the same community just about and went to the same schools. And, and the, if people are telling you in the 50s and 60s, the Jewish community was in the central area. Matter of fact, Model Cities bought up all the synagogues when they departed for Seward Park and were allowed to move to Mercer Island because the city has so many restrictive covenants. But uh, no, there are, are uh, 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 Asian, Japanese, Chinese, and Filipino friends I've had for well over 50 years. And I encourage all brothers and sisters, if you see any bigotry uh, aimed at our Asian brothers and sisters, please intervene. And uh, I was even, uh, I keep thinking about uh, 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 Donnie, 
in the international demand. I yeah. think that's a thing he's needed right now. His spirit is needed right now. People need to organize around that. So I'm encouraging all my friends and a lot of we grew up, we grew up with, like I said, Japanese, Chinese, and Filipinos primarily. The other folks came a little later. Uh, as, uh, the younger uh, Black folks have a better relationship, I think, with a lot of the Vietnamese, Cambodians uh, than, than the older Black folks because we got here, we all lived in the same neighborhood and all had each other's back. And that's the spirit that I've always had uh, because people that come from here, it just been here recently, they don't understand that dynamic. But then once again, though, you can't find black folks in the central area because they've been, they've been, they call it gentrified. I call it economic apartheid out of, of the area. So, but Velma, you know, we always have your back. Uh, uh, and uh, anything that, that I can do, or our community can do to come together uh, to fight this bigotry and this racism, you know, I'm there right there with you, my sister warrior lady. So whatever I can do, you know, you just let me know. And I'm sure Hayward, you know, felt the same way. And we do work collaboratively, like with the Washington State Civil Rights Coalition. So we'll be doing a lot of things uh, jointly. So Velma, if there's any other information that comes up, uh, please get it to us so we can get it on the air. Or if you have somebody you would like to have us interview, please let us know. We're in this together for justice. And we're not going to quit until we uh, all people are treated equally. So thank you very much, Velma. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Hayward. Thank you, Velma. Okay. We have uh, our next guest on. Uh, he used to live right across the street from Garfield. I graduated and went to class with his uh, older sister. That was Sheila Wu. This is my next guest is Michael Wu. Uh, if you back in the late 60s, 70s, you heard about United Construction Workers Association when uh, these brothers went to jail to get black folks some jobs in the building trades industry. And Michael Wu, you need to come out of retirement because it's looking real bad right now. How you doing, Eddie? Hello all to right, all your all. listeners. All right. Well, people, so they really uh, admired your the uh, the uh, tape you did, the video you did for the April Fourth event. So that ran quite a bit on my Facebook page, and you got a lot of applause for your sincerity. I also sent a copy of that back to members of the Black Caucus, and I think Judith Chu got one in the Asian Pacific uh, Islanders Caucus. So. Anyway, Michael, go on and take a couple minutes and share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Well, I mean, you talked about the old neighborhood, um, uh, different ethnic groups uh, grew up together, and uh, we never saw color. We just saw each other as neighbors and friends and family, and uh, I think the fact that black folks and Asians and other people of color kind of grew up in neighborhoods together uh, in Seattle made Seattle very unique. And uh, the whole uh, development of the Rainbow Coalition almost came natural for different ethnic communities here in Seattle. And I was lucky uh, to be an activist working as an organizer with a predominantly uh, black African-American organization fighting for access into the uh, construction trades, the unionized construction trades, uh, who at that time and maybe continue to have some questionable kind of practices uh, regarding entry into the trades. But um, I think, thank God for the United Construction Workers and the community who supported us 
uh, many, many workers of color and women have uh, been able to enjoy successful careers in the trades. So that's that's kind of what I was. I was an organizer and activist in the community, and I continue to support younger activists who uh, carry on that work. And you also have the involved with uh, Lilo, which is a, a legacy of leadership, equality, and leadership. Give it to me again. I, I got a legacy of equality, leadership, and organizing. Because uh, unless you're organizing, uh, you can talk about all the stuff you want, but you got to get other people involved. And uh, that was the important part of the or Lilo's role. Uh, and uh, all the work that took place in this region. Um, they're a very significant organization that continues to do work. And so, uh, Michael, what you're involved with quite a few other organizations. Just for historical purposes, can you just share with our listeners of some of the activities that UCWA undertook to get justice for Blacks in the building trade unions? There were a number of jobs closed down. If you could also mention some of the people who were in the organization who were leading it, like Harley Bird and, and folks like that. Um, well, I mean, there's too many men and women <laughs> uh, to name uh, that, you know, had a key role in the United Construction Workers. But the name that's synonymous with the United Construction Workers is Tyree Scott, uh, who was also the founding chair of Lilo, um, and by trade, he was a, a journey-level union electrician um, and played an important um, part as a rank-and-file member in that union to ensure the voices of workers uh, and the rights of workers will continue to be heard. But um, Tyree always saw that... Uh, the way that we resolve the issues in our community is to make sure that people had a good job. And because his father uh, ran a minority-owned electrical company, Scott Electric, uh, used to be near 23rd and Union, um, he knew firsthand that it was difficult for particularly black contractors and land workers uh, to have a successful career in the uh, local construction industry, and uh, uh, the United Construction Workers was formed uh, to ensure that workers, individuals, could find pathways into these successful careers. Um, and one of the activities that they helped lead was they led a two-pronged approach of community organizing to uh, engage with um, men and women who are seeking careers in construction uh, or already had experience coming either out of the military like Tyree uh, or maybe they had experience uh, working in construction trades coming up from the South. Uh, but that organizing effort coupled with uh, a legal strategy, and back then the United Construction Workers um, used Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to uh, bring lawsuits uh, against five major building trades, the electricians, plumbers and pipe fitters, iron workers, sheet metal workers, 
and operating engineers uh, to force entry uh, for excluded black workers to enter into the trades. And so that was in 1970. And so well, we're 50-something years later, 51 years later, uh, we've had hundreds uh, and hundreds of not black workers and maybe thousands of workers of color and women that have enjoyed access to these high-paying careers in construction as a result. Um, so, I mean, I just it can't be uh, forgotten that had it not been for that work of the UCWA, um, we might not have been able to enjoy the kind of diversity that we have right now. And it's still a struggle. Um, uh, the city of Seattle, the Port of Seattle, and King County are jointly working on a strategy uh, called uh, Priority Hire to prioritize uh, low-income workers of color and other low-income workers in zip codes uh, to give them some priority to working on uh, publicly funded construction sites. So got to keep those kinds of initiatives going to make sure that there's always a demand uh, for workers of color and women to enter into these trades and, and learn a skill. Michael Wood, that was a story I wanted my listeners to hear. That's some very, very important history. And unfortunately, history repeats itself. So we're going to be calling on you again for some updates on what you're doing. So, Michael Wu, thank you very much today, brother. We appreciate Eddie, your time. Thank you for all your work. All right. Bye. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with uh, Mr. Dunstan after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community, and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the Port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at Port Seattle. Org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. 
Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Uh, before we uh, proceed, while we're waiting to hook up with uh, Mr. Ernie Dunstan, uh, I want to just uh, give a shout out to Leslie Jones and Sound Transit, uh, Liz Alzier, uh, City Sale Purchasing and Construction Services Department, uh, Mian Rice with the Port of Seattle's Diversity Contracting Office, uh, Concourse Concessions, Dave Pukahara, SeaTac Bar Group LLC uh, with Rod O'Neill and Jerry Whitsitt, and Stephanie Ogle handles all of our technology, and she does a fantastic job. I want you to check out the MLKCC, MLKCC.org website and Facebook page. And also we have some, want to congratulate Rod Brandon. He's been named the new executive director of the Sale Housing Authority. He will replace uh, Andrew Lofton. And both of those guys came out the city of Seattle. I think Mayor Norm Rice's office, both of them, I think. So anyway, we also have some sad news and I want to turn that part over to my co-host Hayward Evans. Yeah, you know, Eddie, it's just, I'm really hurt about this one. You know, Robert Haynes, Bob Haynes passed away, uh, avid member of Mount Zion, but working with the young people, he's a retired banker, and he took these young young people, young black men, and uh, what, what got me is when he started a program, they were teaching them how to trade and sell and buy stock, and these young people would take their little $1,000, and before the year was out, they were at 50, 40, 70,000. They were killing it. He was teaching them the value of a dollar, compound interest. I am so respectful. And, and, and the fact is, he's a person we're truly going to miss, especially in terms of what he's done to a lot of the young people at Mount Zion and throughout the community who would attend, who would attend the Team Isacar program. And, uh, and again, I'm just impressed with how he presented himself and how he educated them on the value of a dollar and got them in the entrepreneurial spirit that we need so desperately now in our community. Hey, well, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, the other thing too, I, I want folks to, uh, if you get a chance, uh, uh, the National Action Network, Reverend Al Sharpton, they're having their annual conference. That's going on right now. And I'm sure if you go ahead and Google NAN, National Action Network, you can still register to participate in, uh, in that uh, conference. Uh, in terms of, uh, and I did post a picture on my Facebook page of Dr. Arthur Fletcher, uh, then Governor Gary Locke and myself. Uh, Dr. Fletcher was talking to him about Initiative 200, and we had a very good report from, uh, from Jesse Weinberry. Hey, well, what is your uh, impressions and feelings about this executive order that uh, Representative, former Representative Weinberry is working on? You know, the, uh, the governor has to sign it. And again, everybody needs to call, call to sign, to get their name on this uh, letter that we're sending them to, sending to the governor, 206-701-4188. We've lost over $4 billion since 1998 when this whole farce of a law came into effect, supposedly non-discrimination. We have been discriminated against ever since we got here. And affirmative action is very, very real. You know this, but it just reaffirms a white folks position. That's all it's done. And as long as subjectivity comes into play, that they make a decision based on how they feel about this individual obtaining a contract or getting admitted to college or, or, or obtaining a job, we're going to have a serious problem. So I'm really impressed with what Jesse came up with. And hopefully, again, and, and you know, that whole enforcement mechanism, you know how a lot of Quasim always says, look, you can talk all this stuff you want, but if it's not enforced, <laughs> then we got a serious problem. 
And it sounds like Jesse covered Jesse covered that base, but now it's on us to push the governor to like Dr. King would say, it's never too late to do the right thing, Mr. Governor. Time to move on it, get that executive order out. When you talk $4 billion, let's look at the undulation. When you have $4 billion, the money's going to a smaller company, you usually hire your relatives or a close friend, usually of the same color, and that money turns over. If it turned over three times, that's $12 billion in actual assets that could have been generated in our community that we lost. And that's why that whole economic apartheid, <laughs> this is an excellent example. The governor says he's for Black Lives Matter and, and that he's for um, inclusion and diversity. Well then prove it, <laughs> prove it. Well, we have, we have some opportunities coming up, I think with executive order, but it's still gonna be up to how is how do you perceive it being enforced? by department by department. Yeah, you see, and that, and that what gets me, it has to be incorporated in their personnel file, their review, when they're reviewed. But, you know, and, and I guess they use the term incentive. They always say incentives. There's built-in incentives. There needs to be built-in penalties as well, i.e. that is real clear. You will lose your job if you don't hit those goals. Enough is enough. After 20 years, over 20 years, 21 years now, that we've been under this this uh, draconian law, no, no, it's, it's time for a change. And Eddie, you know, you see the impact you, right in your face, all the businesses that we've lost, all the potential opportunities in, in our community. I mean, hey, if some of those contractors would have been able to keep their job, we might still have a greater portion of the CD. They, they worked us right out of there. Well, that, that, that goes to show you uh, the wealth we're talking about being generated by those lost opportunities. Uh, not only just with the state, but that that covered all public entities in the state of Washington, school districts, cities, counties, and everybody was under that illusion. Uh, and I'm really glad that uh, uh, Representative Weinberry's committee have done the research to determine that even on the voters pamphlet, Tim, uh, I mean, uh, John Carlson's piece says, uh, this is to prohibit gender and race preferences this does not kill affirmative action. But it was interpreted that way, particularly when you get a directive from the governor saying you will cease doing anything uh, that's even close to affirmative action. So once you say uh, uh, no race or gender preference, anytime a black person gets anything, okay, we got uh, Ernie is on right now. Let's get him right quick. Ernie Dunstan. Thank you, Eddie. Okay, yes. Yeah, I know we got the, the tie with the 30th anniversary of the project. Mrs. Taiwan on. Uh, give us uh, uh, our listeners about a minute of the of the history and going to what's going to be happening virtually on uh, next Wednesday, April 23rd. Right. This is uh, next Friday. the 30th. Next Friday. Okay. You ready? Yes. Go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, this is the uh, 30th annual uh, Taiwan on event. We uh, we've been doing this now since. Uh, uh, for 30 years, and we get we the only year that we missed was last year because of uh, because of the pandemic. And this program is designed to uh, work with uh, young African American men in the community, uh, help them, uh, give them some uh, direct uh, mentorship, and help steer them into. Uh, into a life after high school, either in the workforce or in college. 
we a part of our program. We have a strong uh, scholarship uh, component, and we give out about uh, twenty thousand dollars a year in scholarships for young men. And we have we have young men in colleges all over the country. Uh, but the main thing is uh, our program, Project Mission program, where we um, in uh, right now we're in five high schools. Cleveland, Franklin, Garfield, Radio Beach, and we stretched out to Kinlade for our first out of district uh, school. And uh, the, uh, the event is normally a, a luncheon that we have at the uh, Fairmont Olympic Hotel, but this year we uh, are following the same format we do for our luncheon, except it's going to be virtual. And uh, the important thing is that we're able to introduce the young men in the program. Uh, and have a couple of uh, uh, the young men talk about what they're getting out of the program, and then we honor the graduating seniors. So uh, this is, like I say, this is our thirtieth year doing this. It's been a very strong program. We've uh, we've been able to uh, generate uh, support for many of uh, the major corporations. But our main uh, uh, partner is uh, Turner Construction Company. And uh, they uh, have underwritten a great portion of this program each year, and they uh, they are uh, co-sponsors of the program. And then we have other uh, sponsors, such as uh, Alaska Airlines, uh, the uh, Leslie Bernie's uh, Smith Foundation, Eli Lilly is a real big one, Seattle Seahawks, Casey Family Programs, and several other programs that help supplement our scholarship fund and make it possible for. Uh, before we, uh, and we'll, we'll repeat this again next week because we're on next Thursday and the event's next Friday, the yes, 23rd, yes. right? So what, yes. what I want to do is just say, give us, uh, how can people log on? And we'll repeat it next Thursday as well. All right. So anyway, uh, you, you go on uh, info at org, and uh, there'll be a, uh, a link that you can uh uh, link in and uh, sign up to uh, be a part of the, uh, the virtual program. Okay, Ernie, we'll repeat it next week. We're out of time right okay. now, but thank you okay. very much, Ernie. All right. And okay. keep up the good work, my brother. We appreciate you. Take care. Take care. Okay, Eric, thanks a lot. Uh, Hayward Evans and Eddie Rye with another edition of Urban Forum North Northwest. We'll talk to you again next Thursday at 2 o'clock. Always go to urbanforumnw.com to hear archive programs and other relevant information. Uh, we'll talk to you again next Thursday.